from KQED. From KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. A growing number of Bay Area elementary schools are getting waivers to reopen for in-person instruction. But when does a green light from health officials mean a school can actually welcome pupils back? The ultimate decision to reopen will come when teachers, parents, and superintendents can agree on what constitutes safe conditions and when counties are able to stay off the state's monitoring list. Coming up, we talk with parents, teachers, and administrators about what it will take to get kids back in the classroom. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Since California first issued safety guidelines for schools back in August, health officials have given the green light to dozens of Bay Area elementary schools to reopen classrooms. But the approvals don't necessarily mean kids will be learning in person immediately. Debate over safety protocols, feedback from teachers and parents, and possible lawsuits all have potential to slow reopening. We'll hear about the guidelines and which Bay Area K-6 schools are approved to reopen, and we'll talk with parents, teachers, and school administrators about next steps for getting children back in the classroom. Joining us for the hour is Jill Tucker, K-12 education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, and good morning, Jill. Good morning. I guess I'd like to begin by just talking about what waivers are so people can understand uh, not only what a waiver is, but what it means and how you go about actually establishing a, wa- a waiver. Elementary schools, as I said, have been approved, about a dozen of them, for in-person instruction here in the Bay Area. And county health officials and California's Department of Public Health have to decide on a waiver. But what does that mean in terms of, well, reopening specifically uh, and under what kind of protocols? Right. So, so uh, right now, most of the state is still at the highest level of risk for the coronavirus, um, which means schools uh, typically wouldn't be able to reopen, as is the case with hair salons or other types of things. Um, and so, the the governor and and the state developed a, a waiver process or authorized a waiver process that would allow individual schools or districts to apply to reopen and demonstrate that they can follow a high level of health and safety protocols to uh, keep students and staff safe. Um, So across the state, um, mostly private schools and charter schools have applied for these waivers um, and uh, hundreds have been authorized by the state uh, to reopen. And so what we're starting to see is in-person instruction at individual schools. Um, They have demonstrated that they can test staff um, and and uh, at least every other month uh, for the coronavirus, that they have social distancing, that they have um, soap and hand sanitizer and other supplies in place, that they're following mask requirements and, and things like that. Each county um, basically is, is creating their own waiver process um, through the Department of Public Health. So they vary a little bit in terms of what the expectations are for testing or other types of things, but in general, um, there's a litany of of of, of uh, protocols and other things that they have to have in place in order to be granted a waiver by the state and and by the county. Now, yeah, but as you ind- indicated, waivers have actually doubled uh, to just this past week, 220. And here in the Bay Area, you've got 
eight in Santa Clara and 18 in San Mateo and 13 in Marin and four in Contra Costa and Alameda is planning theirs. So uh, there is at least a kind of momentum here or some sort of momentum, although also, as you indicated, most schools, about 72% of school students uh, are 73% to be exact uh, in public school students at this point are in that purple category. We can talk about that later on, perhaps, but what that means is the riskiest and they can't reopen until health department grants waiver uh, for the kids. Um, let's talk about these protocols, though, because there's a lot that we have to take into consideration here. I mean, safety protocols uh, include parents and teachers' input. They include really the possibility of lawsuits and how those have to be handled. Yeah. So you know, I mean, it's it's a you know we're all in such new territory here, and I think the school officials as well as health and safety officials are are trying to figure this out, trying to take the best science and figure out what is going to be the best circumstances or conditions for students to return to the classroom. Um, and, and so what we're seeing are, you know, the, these things like putting desks six feet apart, um, you know, having hand washing stations, uh, masks. Most of the, a lot of the schools that, that I've talked to recently that are reopening, they're trying to do as much instruction outside. So they've set up outdoor classrooms um, you know, with, with tents or, or shade coverings of some kind um, where they can do most of the instruction outdoors. Um, so they're in person, but they're outside. Um, that may get a little uh, tricky with the air quality issues that we're having, as well as weather perhaps in the future. Um, but, but, you know, the, the goal is to keep everyone as safe as possible. It, it, it's much more difficult for public schools to do this Number one, they have a lot more schools, you know, in, in San Francisco, over 100 schools and in Oakland, uh, you know, 80 something schools. So, uh, you know, it's much more difficult for, for the public schools to, to meet these guidelines across all their schools um, than an individual private school. You know, some of these private schools are, you know, $35,000 a year tuition and, and are able to, to do weekly testing of staff and students as, it, as was, is the case with one private school. So uh, we're, we're really seeing across the board, um, schools are actually exceeding the county guidelines for a waiver. Um, and then in other cases, public schools are basically saying, we're not there yet. Uh, they're not applying. They, they have no timeline of when they might do so. Some are even going beyond the state protocols from what I'm reading. Uh, Los Angeles Unified, for example, uh, which is in, has the largest district in the state, planning routine testing along with contact tracing uh, for all students and all staff. But we also uh, have to include in all this, Jill, um, you mentioned outdoor space and obviously masks and uh, hand washing and all of that, but things like uh, routine disinfection and ventilation. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. It's, yes, a lot is the, the, the exact word. It's, 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 uh, it's crazy, actually, because you have districts, you know, like San Francisco, where they have very old buildings, they have portable classrooms. Some of these spaces do not have windows that open or windows at all. And so when you're talking about ventilation, there, there are some spaces in schools that just simply can't be used right now. Um, you know, so they're looking at adapting other types of spaces like maybe the cafeteria or or other places that they can uh, socially distance students for instruction. Uh, but in many cases, even outdoors, they don't have the ability to put, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of students outside. Um, so they're, they're really looking at, you know, perhaps phasing in uh, students, prioritizing students with the most needs. 
So that might be special needs students, um, English learners, uh, other types of students, homeless students or foster children who have the highest needs that they can bring back to campus and keep the number of students very low in spaces, you know, spaced out. So, um, you know, but everybody's sort of got a lot of balls in the air trying to figure this out. And, and we haven't even talked about the cost. Um, Los Angeles's um, uh, testing program is estimated to cost the equivalent of about $300 per student um, for the year. And, and most districts just simply don't have that kind of extra money right now. And if, uh, for example, uh, there's liability and the possibility of litigation and lawsuits, it may mean even more costs. Uh, the the um, legislature tried to essentially um, move through actually not allowing for liability, or, uh, uh, but they failed. And so uh, unless that changes, uh, we've got a situation which is uh, going to be very expensive for the schools, too, because a lawsuit can simply be instituted. Uh, and by the way, we're talking with Jill Tucker, K-12 education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. You have questions about waivers, and are you a parent whose school has gotten a waiver? You can give us a call now, and we invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available to you. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That number again for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have or any comments or thoughts to forum at kqed.org. And let me bring uh, Sheetal Argawala on. Uh, Sheetal Ar uh, Argawala is a parent of an elementary school uh, kid in the San Ramon School District, and welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you. I guess the place uh, I'd like to begin with you is, wh how do things stand for you in terms of waiver in San Ramon and your child? Uh, so the school district, the la latest news that we got um, information from the district was they are trying to apply for the waiver. As for uh, yesterday, the district said it's really hard to comply with the county district uh, county uh, guidelines. So they said they are still trying on it, but right now we are continuing on distance learning. Well, as a parent, uh, what is most important to you in terms of feeling comfortable about having your child back in school? Uh, I think safety is the biggest concern. Um, socially, my kid is missing out on a lot. But on the other hand, I'm also concerned for the safety for my child. And what would make you feel most safe in terms of safety? What would be most at least uh, so making we, you feel free to put we, your school kid in school? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, I, if we know that the school district is putting proper county guidelines, following proper county guidelines and putting all those safety procedures in place, and there is a proper channel of communication, stuff like sanitization, um, there is proper ventilation, uh, there is contact tracing, um, the teachers are being tested and the students are being tested. So... Yeah. And they're talking so in San Ramon about dividing the classrooms, aren't they? Uh, like 14 in one class and 14 in another class. Can you explain that? So, yes. So there are a couple of uh, models that have been suggested going to smaller class sizes um, and then going on alternate days and then even shortening the school days and like doing like a morning and an evening session. Sheetal Argawala like again. Morning and a afternoon a parent of an elementary school uh, kid in the San Ramon School District. How, how does your uh, child feel about going back to school? Anxious to go back, wanting to go back? 
she really wants to go back. She says every day, Mom, I'm done. I'm tired of being on the computer all day long. My eyes hurt. My back hurts. Uh, she wants to go back with her friends. She wants to enjoy the playground. She just wants to be in school. Understandably. <laughs> uh, and how's it been for you? I mean, in terms of having her home all the time. Uh, it's it's really hard as a parent. I have an elementary kid and I have a middle schooler uh, who has tons of special needs. Uh, actually, I am on an IEP right now. My husband is on an IEP for my son right now. Uh, it has been the distance learning has been a disaster. So I have to manage the house. I have uh, I have my job, and then my two kids. So literally, I'm running between four rooms. Boy, you have your hands full, uh, and I hope that you can navigate your way through this, and I hope you can find, uh, uh, both you and your daughters, uh, both of your children can find uh, some sense of peace in all this, uh, as well as comfort. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to hear from you. Thank you so much. That's Sheetal Argawala. She's a parent of an elementary school kid in the San Ramon School District. Uh, well, if you'd like to join us, we invite you, if you have questions about waivers, or if you're a parent with... Uh, about to get a waiver, give us a call. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting the latest on Bay Area school reopenings and answering your questions about waivers. Jill Tucker is with us, K-12 education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And here's a listener who writes, Marin's public health officer and superintendent were among first in California to announce school reopening guidelines. The shockingly low standards recommended three feet between students where feasible and okayed class sizes of 25 or more. The low standards caused backlash about the safety of reopening schools among teachers, families, and the broader community. And on that note about Marie, uh, Marin, I want to welcome Itoko Garcia. And Itoko Garcia is superintendent of Sausalito Marin City School District. And welcome to the program. Itoko Garcia, do we have you with us? Thank no? you very I'm sorry, are you there? Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, thank you, except we have uh, what sounds like a technical... I am here. Oh, yeah, okay. Can you hear me? You were you were coming in uh, kind of uh, uh, brokenly or uh, staccato sounding. Uh, I don't know if we have a good connection here, but we'll try to make sure that we do. Let me bring a caller on in the meantime. Sammy is joining us. Sammy, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm actually a, a parent and an essential worker in Berkeley, and I'm calling because we enrolled our kindergartner in a small independent school before the COVID crisis. And they ran uh, you know, academic camps all summer in small pods that were allowed. And when the waiver process came out, the school attempted to um, contact the health department to apply because they had all the protocols in place that would satisfy the waivers and the Alameda County declined even the opportunity to apply for a waiver um, without giving any specific criteria about what would be allowed um, to, you know, what, what the school would need to do to be able to allow. And so what became very clear is that this is a county-by-county county issue, even though the state processed the waivers. Um, and I recognize the inequities of independent schools versus 
public schools, but I do think that everyone I know that's doing a public school now has caught it up and is paying for a private teacher, which furthers inequities even more. So smaller independent schools that are not only full of, you know, wealthy people, there are plenty of kids who are on scholarship or don't have money are being denied the opportunity to open as well. We just got word that I think this week maybe they are allowing waivers, but the waiver process has been in place for weeks now. Yeah, Sammy, thank you for that call. Jill Tucker goes back to the, the lines of authority between state and local. Uh, can you talk about that and address her concerns? Yeah, so, so essentially the state uh, health department and the governor are giving guidelines and directions. Um, there are some requirements in terms of, you know, what tier they're in, um, which is a color-coded system. Um, but in general, it then falls to the counties and the, and the local school districts or the schools um, to decide how they want to proceed. The county basically can create a more uh, rigorous system in terms of reopening than even the state requires. So that's what the caller was seeing in Alameda County. Initially, Alameda County said, we aren't doing any waivers. Alameda County remains at the highest level of risk for coronavirus, which is purple level. Um, and they, uh, they, they announced that they just simply wouldn't be granting waivers. They have changed their mind. I think there was enough pushback um, and they are initiating the waiver process. Now schools can start um, initiating that process uh, by, by talking, by, by submitting their um, protocols and things like that. Um, I, I would imagine that in the coming weeks, we will see waivers out of Alameda County. Um, but again, this is very much a localized uh, decision-making process. And it, it really is up to the local health officials to weigh how the virus is uh, having an impact on their community, the spread, where it's focused, uh, the hospitalizations, all of these things. And, and in some counties like Alameda, they're being much more conservative than even the state is allowing. Yeah, as I said earlier, they're certainly trying to plan things in Alameda, but you got seven of the nine Bay Area counties who are in this four-tiered color-coded coronavirus monitoring system, uh, uh, essentially in the purple. And what that means is they're the riskiest and they can't reopen until the health department grants a waiver. Uh, and that's, of course, for K-6 only. But let's also talk about um, the red, because the red can reopen if they're at a level uh, for at least a couple of weeks, uh, though the counties in the uh, um, districts can still impose more strict rules than the state can. You've got only Napa, San Francisco, and Santa Clara as being red now. Right, yeah, so red is the, the next highest tier, uh, right below purple. Um, so there's still a lot of risk in the community, there's still a lot of spread, but it allows a lot more uh, businesses and services to reopen. Um, San Francisco has been in the red, if you will, for, for um, I think coming up on two weeks. Um, which means schools could reopen uh, without the waiver process. But again, it goes back to the counties. And in, in many of the red counties, it's still going to be up to the county public health department to allow schools to, to reopen or not. And so in some cases, they are still requesting um, that the schools submit a, a, a basically an application to reopen. It, it wouldn't be called a waiver per se, but it's still the waiver process showing that they are still going to have these protocols in place. Um, so they can't just reopen uh, two weeks into the, the red tier. Um, it's still going to be up to the county. So we're seeing those types of situations in Marin and San Francisco where individual schools um, are going to have to still prove 
that they will reopen in in a safe manner. They can't just throw open the doors and go back to normal. Again, Jill Tucker's K-12 uh, education reporter, San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, we've been talking about Alameda. I want to get a caller on from Alameda. That's Jacques, who's a pediatrician. Jacques, good morning. Welcome. Hi. You're on the air. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm also a pediatrician and parent here in Alameda, and uh, I just wanted to reassure and um, Wanted to reassure about what? We lost that caller somehow. Um, I mean, a little problem here. I, I, in fact, speaking about problems, do we have Itoko Garcia on now with a good line? I hope so. Itoko, are you there? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can, uh, thankfully. Excellent. Good, good to have you with us. Uh, again, Itoko Garcia, superintendent of Sausalito Marin uh, City School District, and they were open. I guess you were open, in fact, uh, and all ready to go. And then someone tested positive and you had to close down for a week, uh, taking serious precautions on that. Um, but you met the guidelines in the pilot program, and I wanted to talk with you about that. Uh, talk about, well, you were starting on that back in March, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it, you know, and if I may, I, I'd like to offer um, a little bit more positionality than just my role as a superintendent. Um, I'm also a parent of a 20-month-old child and a 9-year-old and a 17-year-old that are enrolled, uh, the school-age kids in Oakland Public Schools. And, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm bringing several different lenses to this, but in, indeed, uh, we were one of the first schools uh, to bring students back for in-person learning uh, at our uh, district-operated school, Bayside MLK uh, in Marin City. Uh, we did that um, in um, May. And the reason that we did that, and I, I think, you know, I've been listening to the other callers and the different parents, and, you know, I really can empathize with the struggles that um, parents are having. I, I have them in my own household, even though I've been an educator for 22 years and have a doctorate and a master's degree in teaching and education. This is not easy, um, especially when, you know, my, uh, my partner is a social worker for Alameda County. So both of us are essential workers and need to go to work during the day. And so often I'm trying to help my nine-year-old, uh, you know, at 7 p.m. and she's gas. So I, I totally get all of the frustrations. And we found some really similar patterns with uh, our distance learning program. Uh, we're very blessed in the Sausalito Marin City School District uh, with a tremendous amount of resources. We are a basic aid school district, so all of our revenue comes from local property tax uh, revenue. We're not dependent on the uh, local control funding formula that so many other, <coughs> excuse me, so many other school districts are dependent upon. Um, but uh, we were able to get, uh, you know, computing devices for every student uh, within two days of the shutdown on March 16th. Uh, any families that didn't have uh, Wi-Fi, we were able to partner with the Marin City Free Library and get them Wi-Fi hotspots. And so even though uh, our community did not have the same access uh, challenges that many communities across the state had, we still saw a, a wide variety and range of ability to engage over this technological platform. Uh, I think for a, many different reasons, some of which callers have covered and others which I haven't heard, which is that some of our families um, still even in 2020 are, are not digital natives on computers. They might be digital natives on cell phones, but 
navigating Zoom and figuring out how to deal with Chromebooks and how to operate computers they're unfamiliar with was a challenge. And what we found, and this is very common in education, anything we do works for about 80% of the kids. And I think distance learning worked pretty well for about 80% of the kids. What was super interesting was um, many of our kids who we knew were bright but um, had issues with engagement or attention really, really excelled over distance learning. Some of our kids who were doing very well in a traditional school setting um, had a lot of challenges with engagement. And uh, so for uh, about 20% of our students, um, it became apparent relatively quickly, I'd say within the first three weeks of the shutdown, that we needed to do a whole lot more than what we were doing. And um, our, our school site principal, uh, David Finan, our community school manager, Jamia Reynolds, um, pulled together an amazing coalition of nonprofit organizations and independent volunteers that, uh, out of the goodness of their heart, had offered to help the community. And we were able to set up uh, what we call a multi-tiered system of support or what was called 10 years ago a response to intervention system around distance learning. And so it had three tiers. The first tier I've described, which is basically uh, Zoom, Google Classroom, computers, hotspots. The second tier was with these um, academic mentors. And so all of the students that were having trouble fully engaging on our distance learning platform um, were able to engage and get a, a check-in call in the morning before class started from an academic mentor, and then a check-out call in the afternoon where um, if uh, they hadn't met any of the goals for the day, the academic mentor was there to help, uh, help them finish their work, finish those goals, and give them any one-on-one -on -one tutoring that they might need to connect to the content. Um, that worked for another 10% of, of our kids. But we still had... Um, um, about 5 or 10% of our students that really were not engaging with distance learning at all, even with that level of support. And so uh, we did a system of home visits. Uh, we made sure that everybody um, understood how to operate the technology. Uh, we understood everybody. Uh, we made sure that everybody understood the opportunity to connect with academic mentors. And that narrowed our number of students that were not engaging down to about 11. So we did a second round of home visits, and we said, hey, look, we're, we're, we're providing all of these supports, and, and we really need your child to engage. Um, and if they can't, we're going to ask you to come back to school, and your child will be uh, alone in a space and supervised by uh, a student success coach, which is uh, the uh, job title of our classified staff, uh, otherwise known as paraeducators or classroom aides in other school districts. Um, and uh, really because of the MOU that we had with our CSEA bargaining unit, which allowed them to come in person, we were able to um, bring back 10 of those 11 kids. One of them uh, started immediately doing all their work when they heard they were going to have to come back to school. Um, and we brought kids back. And uh, they were there uh, under the supervision of staff. Uh, for a few hours a day to get done with their distance learning. And, um, and so we started to learn about a lot of safety protocols, about how to operate school with social distancing, with masks, um, doing uh, health screenings before arrival, uh, temperature checks with no-touch thermometers. 
I think one of the things that is really critically important for anybody listening or any parent that's, that's interested in opening school to understand or any other school leader is that the ground keeps shifting underneath us around the guidelines and the rules of how to do this. And as was eloquently illustrated by um, some previous callers, Really Let me jump in here for a moment, if I could, Itoko, yeah, because you, you, excuse me, you're talking about something that I think goes right to the heart of what is on many people's minds. Fear is pervasive because no one knows and, and can't really be certain of best practices. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about what constitutes safe conditions, about research uh, that's changing all the time, about infection rates that are changing. Uh, I mean, this you've reopened and, you know, it was fascinating to hear all that background about remote learning, but now you're reopened. And the fact of the matter is that there are a lot of particularly teachers who are afraid to go back to school. I want to find out just from you, if you could give us a cogent sense of how you got the teachers on board here. That's the X factor in so many of these reopenings. Absolutely. And it goes back to what I mentioned around our status as a basic aid school district and having resources that are not available to all schools in California. Um, we were able to, uh, from that small pilot, actually run summer program for three different summer programs for 80 kids. Uh, we ran a summer bridge program for uh, TK students rising to kindergarten. We run a, uh, an extended school year program for students with IEPs. And then we partnered with the HANA Project, which is a local nonprofit, and they ran Freedom School as a summer program. So we actually operated program for 80 kids uh, throughout the summer and uh to the best of our knowledge, there was no infection that occurred in any of those programs. And the way that we did that was really tightly adhering to the health protocols um, that we had developed in our pilot program, but also having very small class sizes. The uh, Summer Bridge program for TK students had um, uh, 11 students. The extended school year program for um, special ed had five students in, in a cohort. And the Freedom School cohorts were all less than 12. And that is really how uh, we got our teachers on board to come back for in-person school. Uh, just a point of clarification, we actually have not opened for in-person school yet. That will happen on Monday. Um, and, and the way that we um, got our teachers union and our teachers to feel comfortable was um, guaranteeing that we'd have no more than 13 students per cohort. Uh, we have five separate entrances and staggered arrival and dismissal, so no cohort of 13 students or less will be in contact with any other cohort of students at arrival and dismissal. Each cohort has their own dedicated bathroom. Each cohort has their own dedicated recess time. Uh, no more than two cohorts will be on the playground during lunch, but they'll be separated on opposite ends of the playground and will not mix. And those arrival and dismissal times for lunch are staggered, so they won't even cross each other in the hallway. We have one-way directional um, uh, movement in um, any area where classrooms could cross-contaminate. And then uh, we're blessed with the physical layout of our building to um, have enough distance to keep six feet of social distance and a unidirectional way going and coming inside the building and outside in the breezeways. Uh, in addition to those safety precautions, every student TK through eight will be required to wear masks. We have sanitation stations at all of those five entry points and people doing uh, temperature checks and health screenings, even though that's no longer required. 
We're coming up on a break. Itoko Garcia, thank you for joining us. Itoko Garcia, again, is superintendent of Sausalito Marin City School District. They've got it together there from the sounds of it. Uh, and uh, we'll hear more about what is being done, particularly where teachers are concerned. Joining us after the break will be Susan Solomon, president of the United Educators of San Francisco. And, of course, we'll hear from you, our listeners, as well. Stay tuned for more. I'm going to, in fact, read a comment here from Amir, who says, Our son goes to private school in San Mateo, and we are grateful that school has just gotten the waiver. But it feels like we'd be sending our kids to school until someone gets infected with the virus. Why not put all of our resources into improving remote learning, especially for families with essential workers and lower income families? Getting a whole range of opinions here and concerns, and we'll take up more when we return. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're getting the latest on various school reopenings and answering questions you may have about waivers. And if you do have questions about waivers, you can join us now. Or if you're a parent whose school has gotten a waiver, you're certainly invited to join us as well. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch with us also on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or Email questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring Susan Solomon into this. She's president of the United Educators of San Francisco, and welcome, Susan Solomon. Thank you very much, Michael. Glad to have you, and uh, there's a lot of negotiations going on between unions, uh, teachers' unions and administrators, and we can get to that in a moment. But I want to get first to the concern I mentioned before, and that is, uh, what I call the X factor, teachers, well, especially older teachers, uh, feeling a risk about going back to school, but also those with health concerns feeling that risk. There's a lot of concern. Is there not among teachers as far as safety generally? You know, there is a lot of concern, Michael, and it's also obviously none of us chose crisis distance learning, as we call it. We're, we, were, we have to do it because there's this terrible pandemic. But, yes, there are concerns. We know our hearts go out to families and children and educators who are all managing this from home. But um, the concerns are real for certain. And we know that when schools closed back in the spring, we've heard from health experts that closing schools likely prevented hundreds and hundreds of COVID cases and deaths. So we are moving cautiously, knowing that if we had our choice uh, and we knew things could be healthy and safe for kids and educators and staff, we would back, be back in person with our students. Well, we just uh, were talking to um, a superintendent of Marin Schools, and uh, he was telling us that uh, he has kids in the Oakland school system. And I know that uh, there's an Oakland parent, for example, who was talking about deliberations over there, uh, feeling like, uh, well, getting involved in some kind of Russian roulette where kids and teachers are concerned, particularly because... Uh, in these communities of color, infection rates are so high. Uh, you're getting a lot of feedback along those lines as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, uh, we recognize that communities of color, historically underserved communities, are hardest hit by COVID, are, have the biggest challenges with distance learning, but are also uh, clearly uh, are suffering the most because of COVID, because of the the jobs that the parents do and uh, and so addressing both the improving distance learning constantly, and it's better now than it was in the spring, and trying to address the needs of uh, our families in the meantime. Uh, and again, how do we keep everybody healthy? 
and I think, you know, the previous speaker made an excellent point. He, he made reference several times to being a basic aid district. So San Francisco is a revenue limit district. It's a different funding system. Yeah. Uh, we don't typically have as much money. And I just want to say this is why we all have to vote yes on Proposition 15 on November 3rd. Uh, as a statewide initiative, that's going to bring $8.5 billion to $12 billion to California schools. So much of what we talk about with public education reverts back to talking about funding. We've got to fund our schools, not just to provide a quality education, but to keep kids and, and educators safe. No, that's a good plug you got in for the initiative. Uh, nice, definitely handled. Uh, I'm going to ask you, though, about something I alluded to before. The school districts were hoping that the legislature would promote a liability protection. Uh, it didn't, at least thus far it hasn't. Right. And, uh, you know, insurers may deny coverage. Uh, that would mean legal costs, as long as we're talking about money here, would have to come out of the general right. budget. Yes, and the general budget was, was um, you know, not in prime condition before the pandemic hit. And so uh, how would we be able to manage all that? And then it's a generous way of describing it. I mean, the, you know, the money, yeah. the revenue uh, and it's the coffers price. are not full. They're not brimming over, they to are. put it mildly. Exactly. It's, a, it's a, another crisis. It's another crisis we're facing. Well, I'd like to get your thoughts about that. Uh, I mean, you, you would presumably like to see the legislature come through on this, would you not? Yeah, we want to see. Uh, yes, at this point, I have to say we need all the support we can get. We've got to provide uh, services to our students and their families, and that takes resources. And, uh, you know, we face particular challenges in San Francisco schools. We have to make sure um, ventilation at the schools is adequate, which we know, again, normal times, it's not always adequate. And now we've got smoke. We can't keep the windows open. Were we in school? And well, um, lots of things to think about yeah. here. I'm, I'm appreciative yes. of the time you spent with us, Susan, and I thank you. That's Susan Solomon, who's president of the United Educators of San Francisco. Uh, let me get a caller on here. This is Sherry from San Jose. Sherry, join us, please. Uh, hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, I am uh, the chair of uh, Mulberry School in uh, Las Gatos. It's a small independent school. And we were very thrilled to be able to open in person this week. Um, and it's going really well. Um, we can thank our staff for working all summer on a very detailed safety and reopening plan. And we also had uh, letters of support in our waiver application from our entire faculty, as well as our parent assembly. So everybody's on board and uh, feeling confident. And for the families that are may have compromised immune systems in their families or whatever. We are also offering um, a remote program that goes at the same time. Well, thank you for bringing that to our attention, Sherry. I appreciate very much hearing from you. And I'm going to go back to Jill Tucker, who is K-12 education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Jill, can you talk broadly about these charter and private schools that have reopened, what we've maybe learned from them so far that's worked and hasn't worked? Well, we're still pretty early in the process. Most of these schools have only been open for a few days or or maybe a week or, or so. So, uh, you know, it's still early in the process in terms of, of whether we're going to start seeing cases um, from schools that have reopened. Um, I think everybody is, you know, waiting with bated breath uh, because it, it, it'll provide some good examples of what is working or, or perhaps what is not working in terms of the spread 
Um, but again, it, it's, you know, I think everybody's making a, a, a similar point. The, the charters in private schools typically don't have unions, labor unions that they have to negotiate with, and they typically have a lot more money. So even if we're seeing uh, examples of, of these schools reopening and not seeing cases, which so far it, is the case, um, you know, it, it's not going to be the best example for the public schools, which is where the vast majority of children uh, go to school in the state. So it, we are wait and, in wait and see mode. Um, so far, so good. But again, it, it's pretty early in the process to to know if if what they're doing it, it will prevent cases or mitigate cases. Um, so, you know, I think we'll know a little bit more in the coming weeks. Well, money has come up here and it's central. Um, I'm going to read a comment from a listener named Brian, and then I want to go away to the heart of uh, uh, the concerns about revenue. Brian writes, I'm sorry, but it's ridiculous to hear about the Marin School District with all their financial resources and high wealth families. It's not reflective of the rest of the state that relies on the standard revenue limits. And let's talk about those limits. Uh, you might even want to address Brian's comment, uh, Jill, but a lot of anxiety that parents have because there frankly isn't enough funding uh, in many cases for PPE or for the resources uh, to do this safely and the way parents want and teachers want. Yeah, so the, the Sausalito Marin City um, School District just has one school and then a charter school as well. Um, and, and in the one school, they have uh, about 100 and something students for, for K-8, um, and they have about $35,000 per student. Um, that's more than double what the typical public school would have in California. Um, they do have a lot of low-income students in the in the traditional school there, so it isn't full of, of wealthy families uh, per se. But it is uh, they do have thirty-five thousand dollars per student. Um, so in places like San Francisco, where they were starting the year with a twenty million dollar budget hole, um, a deficit, uh, you know, you're talking about a very very different situation, and and across. California, a lot of public districts are seeing the same thing because while the students are um, at home in distance learning in the in the spring and now currently in the fall, it's actually costing schools a lot more to do that. They're they're having to buy a lot more technology. Um, they're doing uh, they're still paying staff uh, at the at the school sites, um, you know, to clean or or whatever they're doing or to prepare for reopening. So uh, they're talking about not only were they already in a shortfall, but they're spending a lot more. Um, they're hoping to get more money from the state uh, to cover this or the federal government. Uh, but so far, uh, a lot of districts are, are struggling to, to do the basics. I mean, San Francisco in the summer was trying to get enough soap and uh, back ordered uh, uh, hand sanitizer and things like that. So and masks. Etc. So, you know, they they're behind where some of these private schools or charter schools or or wealthier public schools are. Um, it, it's much more difficult to open many many schools. And again, it's going to require the agreement of teachers to come back, even if they only start reopening for special needs children, like in Los Angeles. That's what they're planning to bring in you know very small numbers of students back. But again going to require the agreement of the teachers unions. And if they can't come to an agreement, they can't reopen. What's your sense of uh, that in terms of where the negotiations are presently? Do you have a sense? Um, 
they they're the agreements have largely been completed for the distance learning this fall but in terms of reopening um my understanding is that negotiations either aren't happening yet or are well uh in the beginning of that process and nowhere near resolution for many districts again you have you know hundreds of a hundred districts just in the bay area each one of those public school districts has to negotiate their own agreement with the union and a listener named donna writes uh that she'd like to hear more information about using nonprofits to help with our school programs uh you shed any light on that jill tucker it's quieter upstairs okay okay so the, 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 I think districts across uh, San Francisco, for example, everybody is looking for nonprofits and other resources to help uh, it, it mitigate the, the, the impact of distance learning and the pandemic on kids. Um, in San Francisco on Monday, they're going to be opening learning hubs, and that's going to be using community groups with city funding um, where kids can go, especially those of potential workers or low-income families. Um, to get academic support and um, a place to go uh, during the day. So everybody's looking at every possible resource to either reopen or to, to mitigate the effects of distance learning. And I think we, we heard earlier from a pediatrician named Jacques and he sent another email in that I'm gonna read here. He writes, uh, as a pediatrician and leader in the American Academy of Pediatrics in California, we are disturbed that larger school reopening in the red tier is tied to higher risk adult activities like unmasked indoor dining. It reflects our society's overall value for children, i.e. not much. We hope California communities can come together to open in-school learning for at least elementary age students who struggle most with distance learning. Any thoughts on that, Jill Tucker? Yes, I, I say, you know, I've heard a lot about this, that people are, are, are frustrated by the fact that we're seeing hair salons open, but not schools. Um, I, I think the, the reality is that um, schools are really complicated in terms of funding, in terms of physical layout, in terms of unions, uh, and the list goes on and on. Um, I, 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 I think it's apples and oranges to, to look at it that way, uh, because the just restaurants are just completely different and uh it would be great if if every if the pandemic you know would would just go away because everybody's wearing masks or or whatever the situation is but the reality is it's still there and it's still raging in many counties across california uh whether restaurants are open or not and or schools are open or not so i i don't know that i would categorize it as putting restaurants as a higher priority than schools. I think it's, it's far more complicated than that. And uh, it, it, it's easier to sort of go into a restaurant and say, okay, they have the protocols in place or they have the, the table space far apart than to go into a, a school district with high schools where there are 4,000 students enrolled in a small campus without uh, enough space to distance uh, students. So it, it, it's complicated, it's expensive. It's, it's really, really hard. Um, and and I, I, I recognize that it, it's frustrating. Um, it's frustrating because when hair salons are not open, but it's really frustrating when schools are not open. Frustrating indeed. And since you mentioned masks, um, masks, uh, from what I understand, and the protocols are gonna require masks for third grade and above, but just encourage them for second grade and below for elementary school students? 
Yes, it depends on the county again, but but in general, I think they're trying to get all kids to wear the masks and they're going to keep kids in cohorts so that even for the little ones in tr transitional kindergarten or kindergarten, if, if their mask slips or, or you know, they're, they're close to each other touching, which is going to be hard to prevent. Um, I, I, you know, they'll, they'll, they're going to try to keep these masks on. In general, I've seen the little ones, they're pretty good about it. So um, I did see a, a young kindergartner, though, at a, at a, at a, a Toko's school. Uh, they were supposed to be reopened this week, but had a questionable test of a staff member. So they delayed it a week. But I saw a little one throw himself into the arms of a teacher. He was so excited to see him. Um, you know, so these are the types of things that, you know, as much, much as you try to keep six feet apart, you know, five-year-olds want to hug their teachers. Um, so it, 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 they're going to do their best, I'm sure, but we are going to see um, mass slipping and, and hugs happening. Joe uh, Tucker covers education for the San Francisco Chronicle and a lot of opinions, as I said, coming in. Here's Rich who writes, as well-meaning as uh, these administrators are, the plans they have laid out are the best evidence of how dangerous they believe this experiment must be. It is immoral to experiment with people's lives. Without a vaccine, returning to school seems a terrible idea. And Jill, what are you what are you hearing from parents about sending their kids back to school? We heard earlier from an essential worker who was frustrated with remote learning. You must be hearing a good deal of that, aren't you? Yes, it's, it's kind of all over the map, but I think parents in general want schools to reopen. Of course, they want them to reopen safely, but I think that they are um, seeing that it's more possible than perhaps the teachers unions at this point. Um, they'd like their kids to go back in school. They are seeing how frustrated their kids are online, the tears, the crying. Um, and so I think in general, what I hear from parents is that they want to find a way to reopen. They don't want to do it unsafely. Um, they want the option of keeping their kids home if they have circumstances um, and health risks that, that would require that. But, but so many kids, so many parents want their kids back in school. It, it, um, you know, it, it, it's frustrating, as I said before. And, and uh, I think there are a lot of fears, not only about the pandemic, but fears of um, lost learning for an entire year. Yeah, I'm afraid fear is all pervasive in all of this. Uh, and as I said, particularly because no one really knows or is certain of what best practices are. Uh, and we come back to that. Uh, we hope we can move forward. Uh, in the meantime, Jill, thank you so much for joining us this hour. It's really been good to have you. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to hear your voice. That's Jill Tucker, K-12 education reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, and we are here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, another hour of Forum up ahead with Mina Kim. And remind you, we always like to hear what your thoughts are about what you hear or would like to hear. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prale, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Senior editor is Dan Zoll, and our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our intern is Jamison Weiss. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Thank you for being with us this hour. Have a good weekend, and above all, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.